Well, all right, everyone, this is Tom Salemi. You're listening to the MedTech Talk podcast. I'd like to talk a bit about acute decompensated heart failure today. It uh, affects more than a million people. They're hospitalized, and new treatment is needed, and that's what our guest today is working on. Steve Gedeke is the president and CEO of a cool neuromodulation company called Cardionomic. Cardionomic has raised a good deal of money from uh, NEA and others, a $20 million Series A. And in this podcast, Steve will uh, discuss Cardionomic's approach to treating ADHF. But we'll also get into uh, Steve's move into medtech, how he found his way into the sector, and what was the decision like when he decided to leave a stable job at a larger company to uh, start with a, uh, a startup, not even a startup, more of an incubator, Denali, which uh, led into the licensing of the technology that Cardionomic is now based around. It was uh, it originated at the Cleveland Clinic. So it's a great story of uh, looking at one's career, trying to figure out what's the right path, and trying to get buy-in from those folks who are most important to you to make sure they're along for the ride. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Steve. Uh, he's a great guy to talk to. He's been a great help for uh, the MedTech Conference. He's, uh, he's given us a lot of great insights, and we're uh, happy to have him involved. Before I get into this conversation, though, I did want to let you know that our next MedTech Conference is happening on May 31st in Minneapolis. So make sure you circle that day. We definitely want to see you there. Now let's get into this conversation with Steve Gedeke of Cardionomic. Steve Gedeke, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Great to uh, finally get into to your story. You've been a big help with the MedTech conference. We appreciate your your insights. It's nice to hear directly from the CEOs on the field, as to in the field, as to what we should be focusing on. And uh, it's now now time though to focus on you. And the question I always like to open up with, uh, because I think it's telling, is to find out how folks have find their way in into medtech. Was this uh, a lifelong plan of yours to get into this industry? Is this a, a Minnesota thing, or uh, <laughs> how did this <laughs> no, come yeah, together? When I when I grew up in Minnesota, everybody's parents worked for 3M or Control Data, so uh, Medtronic <laughs> was an unknown. Uh, unknown entity back in the day, and of course, if I'd been smart as a young boy and bought Medtronic stock back then, I'd be living next to Earl on in, uh, in Hawaii in a big mansion. But uh, I missed that window of opportunity somehow. No, I, I you know I grew up as a kid who liked to take things apart and liked to know how the world worked, and uh, engineering was attractive to me. I uh, um, you know took that passion and also was very interested even early on in kind of business and how things worked from a financial perspective. Uh, so went off to Wash U and got an electrical engineering degree with the idea that I would be an audio engineer. And then that was, uh, I'm dating myself here, but back in the Reagan defense boom, and I almost worked for the defense industry as well in that time. But really the company that attracted everybody's interest uh, from an engineering perspective in that era was Hewlett Packard. It was back in the uh, In Search of Excellence um, day uh, days with the Tom Peters book. And <clears throat> so I had the opportunity to go work for Hewlett-Packard when I graduated from uh, University of Illinois with my graduate degree, and it was an incredible experience. I mean, it was a very, very well-run company, and it was, um, you know, they, 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 the, the founders' hands of Bill and Dave were still, you know, well-felt, management by wandering around and everything else, and um, so did that and actually came back here to Minneapolis and worked for Hewlett-Packard, so I'll spare everybody the journey there, but um, as I looked at my career and what I wanted to do, I became aware of Medtronic, and 
had the chance to go work uh, during, at Medtronic in the, starting in the early 90s. You know, and it was just a leadership team that was incredible with uh, Bob Griffin and Glenn Nelson and Bill George and uh, their passion uh, and engineering rigor and patient focus, you know, really resonated with me and uh, kind of converted me into being a med tech guy with an engineering and business background. Interesting. So how did you, quote unquote, become aware of Medtronic? Obviously, I'm sure it's hard to miss out there. It is nowadays anyway, maybe less so back then. But did you have a personal contact? Uh, did you just uh, sort of admire them from afar? Uh, you know, I, I knew when I moved back that they were emerging. It was really largely a Brady pacing business at that point in time. The tacky business was uh, just just starting to get traction. I actually was the hundredth employee to join the tacky business back in 1993. They had just won the Supreme Court case and uh, were you know coming back to the U.S. to do development. Um, yeah, it was you know as you went down the list of where engineering was in the 90s and in, in the Twin Cities, that was you know one of the companies that came up. The the big companies that I mentioned, like 3M and Control Data, were on the downslide. Uh, Honeywell as well, and and you know really in that era, Medtronic built its business on people that were being laid off from the likes of Honeywell. And mm-hmm. so you'd walk around the building, and it was you know all those kinds of people, and it was you know they cherry picked all of the talent out of Honeywell, and it's one of those uh, you know um, birth created from death stories. What uh, lessons, if any, did you bring from uh, Hewlett Packard to uh, to Medtronic? Yeah, you know, they really had a culture of uh, engineering rigor and and one that was about candor, speak the truth to power. Uh, you know, basically, if something didn't smell right, didn't look right, uh, just because it was a business priority, if it wasn't built on solid engineering and scientific principles, the engineers engineering culture was one where people were really encouraged to speak up. Uh, and uh, there's lots and lots of stories about that part of the HP culture that are already out there from those days. And, and I think that Medtronic, um, really under um, Bob Griffin's leadership and the others I mentioned, you know, had that same culture with a little bit of a different twist with the, the patient-focused twist put on it as well. And so I felt like I came in and maybe was even a little bit more on that end of the spectrum in terms of um, – uh, of those values, but I think it fit the culture well. And, and I came into a culture where they were working on a technology, which was an enhancement of the old magnetically coupled uh, telemetry systems. And mm-hmm. I came in and said, you know, look, if we're going to do something, uh, let's thrill our customers. Let's spend the money in a way that's revolutionary versus evolutionary. Um, let's take a look at the physics of what's being done uh, with the old system and the physics of what can be done with the new system. And I think that kind of package together fit the corporate culture at Medtronic well at that time and allowed me to have advocates at the senior levels of the organization and, and was a catalyst for my career there. And what was your, uh, your significant project there, your major contribution? Uh, well, you're assuming there was one. <laughs> I was well. You wouldn't be in this podcast if you didn't have one. I'll be honest. <laughs> Only the uh, best on the MedTech podcast. So, so I, uh, I I spent the first nine years working in the wireless technologies. So that program that I was advocating for, I ultimately ended up starting from scratch with a white sheet of paper and and built the team from zero to what it became. And we um, created the first implantable ICs for long-distance communication, multimeter communication from an implantable medical device. We uh, put the radio regulations in place around the world so that patients could go from country to country without a license and no licensing requirements for those, which was a huge leap and required uh, major collaboration with the FCC. Uh, we built the first programmers that had the ability to operate in the operating environment, uh, and it was really a cutting-edge technology that now is the standard for implantable medical devices. It's called the Medical Implantable Communication System, or MIX. Um, you can go look up the regulations on the FCC website. Uh, so that was a, a really interesting project with lots of political intrigue within Medtronic because it was not a, 
a therapeutic uh, program, and it was relatively expensive, and that was uh, very difficult for Medtronic to make those investments, at least for certain leaders within the organization. Others like Bill and Bobby and Glenn were obviously huge champions. Um, but, you know, we, we uh, managed to keep it alive and, and got it out there, and it's, in I think, well well north of a million patients today. And uh, uh, so it was, a great, it was a great opportunity to demonstrate leadership, build a team, get something done, be entrepreneurial in a big organization, and then translated that into uh, leading the hardware design organization when they integrated the Brady and Tacky businesses. So I had responsibility for all, all the IC designers and uh, electrical and mechanical final test integration, not the mechanical design itself, but the kind of the final package, if you will, of the device. And um, and then went on to heart failure. So it was just, I think there were a number of things there, but I think the wireless technology was probably the most disruptive within the Medtronic organization. What went into into the creation of that uh Kind of that global network of of uh, radio towers, and to to was it? It sounds like a really complex project. Were you, were you traveling the world? Did you have people in each country? What was that process like? It, it was a crazy complex process, and and what we did uh, originally we put the team together, and we literally didn't know what we were going to do. We didn't know if we were going to do it with uh, infrared communication, or mm-hmm. if we were going to do it with uh, ultrasound or radio waves. And we went back to first principles physics, and and concluded that radio waves were still the right way to do it. And then we dug into this to the spectrum challenges, and um, you know people today talk regularly about the allocation of spectrum and wireless technologies and auctions and all the stuff that you see in the media. But back in 1993, 94 most people really weren't aware of the spectrum challenge that existed and, and, and what was coming with cellular technology. So we were well on the cutting edge of all that. So we did an analysis with a beginning initial U.S. focus of where we could operate, where we would not have interference from big um, things like TV transmitters because mm-hmm. our devices inside had limited capability to avoid interference, but we, but we, and we had to fold in and be compatible with what was essentially a fully allocated spectrum. Uh, so we did this analysis. It was a, a, probably a 20-point power. 20-page PowerPoint, we went arranged time with the FCC. We went and sat down with the head of the division and said, look, we're trying to bring new care, uh, capability to the healthcare system where patients can be monitored in their home. You, you don't have to expect an elderly patient to you know, put a device over their chest and get the alignment right and look for a green light and make it work. We want them to be able to be asleep in their bed and then get their data telemetered out of their device. And if the physician sees a need to change a parameter, they can do it without patient involvement. So we can really enable this whole thing that's now really standard of care, which is in-home patient monitoring. Um, and that really resonated with the FCC and the, the head of the organization at the time said to me, you know, we get the requests all the time for yet another home cell, another home cordless telephone. And, uh, you know, this is not that. This is something that really aligns with our mission of using radio spectrum for the public good. And they were fantastic. They bent over backwards and helped us. And we met with the Air Force and we met with the, the people at the World Meteorological Organization wow. and National Atmospheric Organization and basically sat in conference rooms in Washington, D.C. and looked for a piece of spectrum that they were willing to let us cohabitate in. And at the end of the day, we found a piece of spectrum that is used for weather balloons, uh, 402 to 405 megahertz. And uh, that piece of spectrum was under challenge from a different commercial application. And we came in kind of as a white knight and aligned everybody, the government users and the commercial users, and said, we'll take secondary terrestrial status and they can keep the atmospheric balloon piece of the spectrum. And um, then the U.S. 
part, uh, partners that we developed worked with us with the International Telecommunications Union and people around the world to basically get the spectrum allocated. And uh, it was, I mean, it was an incredible thing that happened. The team did a, an, a crazy good job in something that nobody ever thought could be done, you know, to get a single band allocated around the world on a non-licensed basis um, was a capstone event. So at Medtronic, were you like the, the cool kids walking down the hallways, or were you more like the audiovisual <laughs> club? How were you perceived by the rest of the corporation? Well, uh, among the geeks, I think we were the cool kids. <laughs> I, 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 uh, one of the things I did for my team was everybody got a, a black letter jacket, you know, black sleeves, black body, and, and had our, our team logo on it. Our, 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 our motto on the team was Carpe Diem. So uh, I think that at least that <laughs> – Kind of a gang inside of Medtronic, yeah, exactly. You know, with, uh, uh, so I, th- I think I think people thought that we were doing really innovative things, and they understood that it was a politically incredibly difficult program to get going. We got, I was told to lay off the team more times than I can count. You know, that and and keeping people engaged and moving forward when there was uh, significant political headwinds was always really challenging. But uh, you know, with with really great physician advocacy and key advocacy on the part of some you know really innovative leaders, we kept the program alive and and uh, got it across the finish line. Uh, ultimately, going into the first commercial release was the Concerto project, um, and uh, the, you know that that product development team took the modules that we had developed and dropped them into the programmers and the radios and released the commercial product. It's outstanding. Did. Uh, so Medtronic has obviously contributed so much to the startup world. So many CEOs have uh, have uh, earned their wings there, so to speak, or, or 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 I guess taken their licks and learned their lessons. But did you at that time see a future that had you running a company? And if not, when did that sort of uh, begin to develop? Well, you know, I think I've always wanted to run a company. I didn't know that it would ever be in medtech, and didn't didn't know how I would do it or how I would get there. But I think you know. Um, Going back to HP and being in business development roles, and then at Medtronic leadership roles, and you know, again trying to change the organization and move it in the directions we spoke about, was always in the context of being an effective business leader, standing on a technical foundation versus the other way around. And um, you know, I don't. Yeah, I, I guess it's, I had the itch. I didn't know how I was going to get there. I whether it was moving up further in the leadership ranks at Medtronic or or kind of doing the startup thing. Tom Hector calling and saying, come join Denali Medical 2 wasn't the pathway that I ever actually even knew existed, uh, much less planned for. But um, certainly, you know, I think it was opportunity that came along because, you know, you build the foundation and then luck luck happens on the foundation that you built. So what was that conversation like when he when he told you about Denali 2 and, and what were the pros and the cons? Yeah, so Tom called in uh, early 2010, and he said, look, we're going to do another incubator in the Twin Cities, and uh, I hear you're our guy. And, I, and at that point in time, I, you know, I was open to that discussion for a bunch of different reasons and met with Tom. And, you know, Tom had an outstanding track record of, um, you know, raising money and starting companies. You know, CBRX was, came out of the early Heckner incubators, and uh, now you, you probably saw Rotation Medical just got acquired. That came out of Denali Medical One, which Tom started. Mm-hmm. Ivantis came out of Denali. Um, <clears throat> so, you know, I looked at his track record at being able to raise money, and then, uh, you, know, he, you know, NEA was involved at the time. I didn't know NEA from Adam. Uh, didn't really appreciate how important they were and what great backers they were, but you know his story really held together with this is this is the real deal and if you come in and create an opportunity, you know the the, the history is that you get to go with it as the CEO. And I thought 
you know, that really resonated with what I wanted to do. And of course, the risk profile was there. But I also thought that it was a chance to really become a better med tech executive by being, you know, playing all the bases rather than being within functional roles or core team leader roles in Medtronic, which is, you know, largely what those roles become. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that proved to be true. I, I, I tell people all the time that my even my two years in the incubator made me a 10 times better uh, med tech executive than I would have been if I'd stayed at Medtronic. Not anything against Medtronic, but just simply because you have to play all the bases. Mm -hmm. What was the decision like? Was it, um, I mean, could it have gone either way? You stay at Medtronic, you don't, you don't go out on your own or was it pretty evident? And, and what kind of uh, conversations do you have at home to sort of, uh, (laughs) to help make that decision? (laughs) Well, it certainly could have gone either way. I, I had just been named a Bakken Fellow uh, a few months before that and given my expect- acceptance speech at Medtronic, and it was pretty unusual for people who had you know, become a Bakken Fellow to leave. And, and at the time, it was kind of viewed as uh, your job immunity. You know, you had mm-hmm. seen, uh, um, tenure. You know, you were going to job for life kind of a thing. I don't think it turned out that way, but that's kind of how it was perceived at the time. And my wife is a uh, wonderful person, but she's at the time was a middle school English teacher with a very different risk profile than I have. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we we uh, we had a really good conversation that involved a nice bottle of wine, and uh, I uh, sat down. Uh, you kind of chuckle about this, but I sat down on my whiteboard in my basement. I have a gigantic whiteboard, and we sat down, and I said, you know, let's kind of go through the pros and the cons. And when we got to the risk part of it, uh, I said, you know, you know, what do you think the risk is at Medtronic? And she said, well, and I said, you know, I don't know. This is 2010, and Medtronic had gone through some real leadership challenges, and, and uh, the market was tough. Financial markets were tough. And I said, you know, I'm banking on my revenue basically being that, you know, Medtronic maintains its viability. And, you know, that look at, you know, I have history with IBM and other companies. You can look back during my career life cycle and see people that, see companies that people thought were sure bets that didn't turn out to be sure bets. And, I said, you know, that, so yeah, I probably have a job, not certain that I have a job, but it would be a job and not something that I was as passionate about as this opportunity. And I said, if you look at going off to Denali, two years in, my resume will be very different. I'll have a different set of experiences. And I think that the risk, you know, you know, the chances of me being unemployable two years from now were low and maybe even better, you know, at the different set of experiences just than the Medtronic experience. And so apparently that was an effective sales pitch because she said, you know, if this is what you want to do, you know, go ahead and do it. And uh, she's been, you know, hugely supportive ever since and enabled it to happen. All right. Oh, hold on, folks. This is Tom. Sorry to interrupt, but I did want to let you know that uh, we're uh, having another conference it's called the Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit. We're holding it on November 30th in Boston. And I know you might be thinking digital health is not my bag, but it should be. Or at least you should understand it better. And this is a great way to do that. Go to healthogy.com. That's the word health, followed by the letters egy.com. Healthogy is a great company that puts on the Digital Health Innovation Summit and the MedTech Talk podcast and our MedTech conference. And uh, you should just take a look. It's uh, it's not a gadget day. It's a day of talking about the integration of technology into healthcare. We've got some great keynote speakers. Really proud of this agenda. And uh, I definitely think you should at least take a look and consider attending. We're, we've got other folks from MedTech some major strategics joining us to uh, get a better understanding of the lay of the land. So I hope you'll consider joining us as well. Go to healthogy.com, take a look. And because we love you and you love the MedTech Talk podcast, please use your MedTech Talk code and you'll save yourself some money on the registration fee. Now let's get back into this conversation with Steve Gedeke at Cardionomic. 
what was your experience at, at Denali like and how did it end up uh how did you settle on uh on what you're doing with cardionomic and in we can start talking a bit about what cardionomic does. Yeah, I mean it was it was a great experience. Uh, it was daunting in a way. You know, uh, NEA and the backers basically said, uh, you know, here's uh, you know x millions of dollars, something between one and ten, and uh, <laughs> go off and create companies. And I think the original idea was that they were going to hire two people like me. And and uh, really quickly when I got there, we started working on a on a program for plantar fasciitis, uh, which was going to be the use of Botox basically to remodel the calf muscle to change the strain in the in the system all the way through the remaining tendons and ligaments oh. and um, yeah it was a really interesting idea and uh, you know we had people orthopedic people who were like wow that's an interesting way to handle that problem um, we ended up not doing it because of the risk of nerve damage uh, and and there was really going to be a difficult IP story to protect the delivery of Botox with things like drug-eluting beads because you could do it with injections and the half-life was long enough, et cetera, et cetera. So kind of an interesting idea, but mm-hmm. you know, we killed it within three months. And, and then we quickly pivoted to work on a program for preterm birth. And, and kind of the punchline here is that we were spinning out enough ideas quickly enough that they didn't, we didn't get to kind of the second person like me to um, join the team, and we were burning through our resources testing these programs. So we looked at uh, plantar fasciitis, preterm birth, and then abnormal uterine bleeding, did programs to various levels of maturity and various various levels of spend, ultimately killing them all. And then in 2010, we had uh, started to look around and we're going back to the tech transfer folks. And I think, and uh, you know, there's a, a funny ski lift story there. I can tell you if you want to hear it. But uh, we ultimately got back into the Cleveland Clinic and uh, found out about Cardionomic and decided it was a really good opportunity. And at that point in time, Tom Heckner had decided to retire. Uh, so I was running the incubator as well as, you know, the license agreement with Cardionomic, and we were focused on Cardionomic. I do want to hear the ski, uh, ski lift story, but I'm just curious, going into the, the various um, other areas that you were thinking about starting something and decided not to, what is that process like to decide that, that leads you to decide not to pursue something? Is it, is it a pretty easy calculation? You've got an algorithm that says this is a no-go. Is it, is it a gut check sort of thing? Uh, how, how do you decide that an area isn't worth pursuing? I, I don't know that I'd say it's easy. I think it, there's a combination of analysis and judgment that goes into it. So we had a criteria about unmet need and license si- or, and market size and, and uh, technology pathway and approval. And I think one of the really interesting things that came out with that Denali did well that um, was contrarian at the time if you go back to 2010 and look at other incubators and what people were doing, the message then was 510K, 510K, 510K. Mm-hmm. You know, don't go to the FDA. You can you can't get there from here, um, et cetera. And we looked at it and <clears throat> after talking to some hospital administrators, who said, "Look, the decisions are coming to the to the leadership of these provider organizations. Physician choice is declining." Incremental things are never going to make it to the committee for a decision, much less, much less you know, be significant revenue drivers. So forget forget revolu- evolution, focus on revolution. And if you have something revolutionary that you know changes the effectiveness of care and bends the cost curve, you're going to get a hearing and you're going to you're going to be able to get into the clinic. And uh, that was a really contrarian view at the time. So we were out working on full PMA stuff when everybody else was doing 510k. And that criteria around what was worthy of a of a uh, of that kind of investment and duration was a different set of math, right? We had to look at reimbursement, we had to look at market size, we had to look at you know technical challenges. You know, uh, IP landscape becomes a different story. Um, acquiring companies, 
And we basically created a uh, spreadsheet and mm-hmm. criteria and a scoring model, and we would look at things that came forward and you know kind of do a pre-filter, and then you dig in deeper and deeper about mechanism of action and what preclinical data and clinical data is available, and you know you just kind of grind your way through all those things. And you know the three ideas I mentioned were ideas that were, came from our brains basically at Denali. And then we looked at a bunch of things that came across the transom from, you know, whether it was uh, inventors coming in or tech transfer. And I think in the end, we looked at like 150 ideas, something wow. like that. That's, that's, that's great. And are you, I don't know why I'm fascinated with this space, but are you always 100% sure you're right when you decide not to pursue an area? Or is there always something <laughs> niggling in the back of your head that we're missing a huge opportunity? This is med, I didn't get my Medtronic stock in the 70s. This is the same thing. thing. <laughs> I, I, at this point in my life, I'm never 100% sure about anything, uh, <laughs> no, pro- probably even my birthday, uh, just because <laughs> I've been wrong about so many things over time. Uh, but um, I, I'd have to go back and look. I, pro- I still have the list. I, I don't have an immediate reaction that we missed something that was really good. There was one program that I was pretty passionate about. It was something that I came up with, which was the use of oxymetalazine, which is a topical vasoconstrictor. Uh, it's what's used in, in Visine. It's, it's used in open surgeries. And, and I, uh, I, I propose to create a delivery mechanism for abnormal uterine bleeding where um, women who were bleeding are under vasoconstricted, and we would deliver that drug into the uterus, you know, vaginally with a kind of a syringe-style uh, tampon device, and that we would s- cease bleeding for those women, 12-hour half-life, and that we could bridge them to, to uh, menopause versus ablation or hysterectomy, which both have really negative outcomes. Um, I, I still think that's a really, really interesting idea. I like the mechanism. I think it's a really simple biological mechanism to treat the disorder. Uh, we brought that forward to NEA. We were right on the cusp of doing our first feasibility work. And, you know, they made a rational business decision that they did not want to do a drug-device combo. Mm-hmm. It was kind of a $75 million journey to get to the end. Um, and the acquiring company space was really challenging because the you know the any any time you get into drug device it, it lowers the universe who's who's going to buy it, uh, and so we decided not to do that. That's probably the one I look back on though and think we could have really provided a novel mechanism, you know, new care mechanism to patients, uh, big unmet need, and you know decided not to do it. It was probably the right call from NEA's perspective and our perspective, but that's one I I, I still wonder about. Interesting. Well, you, you managed somehow to land on your feet, at least so far. Uh, how did you uh, connect with uh, the Cleveland Clinic uh, and, and find, again, find Cardionomic? Uh, so it's, it's uh, uh, dumb luck, basically. <laughs> That's I was, always good. I was, uh, I, was, I was out west skiing with some friends on our annual guy ski trip, and, and one of my friends is one of those guys you don't want to sit next to on an airplane because he's going to find out how many kids you have and when you're, what your birthday is and all that. <laughs> Uh, and I'm, I'm the guy that kind of sits there enjoying the snowflakes falling. And, and he was chatting to the two guys next to us on the quad chair. And uh, my ears started to perk up when the conversation went to, yeah, we were associated with the Cleveland Clinic and I run a medical device company. And <laughs> these guys were telling their story. And, you know, I had been to the Cleveland Clinic before to look at tech transfer. And mm-hmm. by the time we uh, all, all put our skis on the snow, uh, we'd exchange business cards and had agreed to reconnect with the Cleveland Clinic. And that single meeting on the chairlift actually catalyzed the entire cardionomic opportunity. So wow. I guess the moral of the story is to uh, be more social on chairlifts. Yeah, <laughs> I guess so. So that, that's remarkable uh, that you can put all this work into analyzing all these other spaces and the, and the idea you settle on is something you happen upon just randomly. So, uh, yeah. 
So you licensed that from the, the Cleveland Clinic, and, and how did that, that uh, endeavor begin? So we did a license deal, as you mentioned, within Denali Medical too. Uh, we put in a little bit of money and then exchange, and my services in exchange, in exchange for that license agreement um, and basically had milestones. Uh, so we started with $250,000 in some, some of my time, and we looked at uh, the animal data that they had and decided that we really wanted to burn off uh, getting the mechanism to work in humans. And so uh, I worked with an outside consultant, just the two of us, and we ultimately put together a plan and got approval from various IRBs and a, cl- a clinical strategy with a non-significant risk pro- profile, did U.S. and O.U.S. cases. And so we did um, 19 human subjects in about 18 months uh, for about a total of $2.2 million uh, with a number of people. So we had to, we had to you know, build equipment, find catheters, get doctors invo- involved, uh, write protocols, get approvals back to my playing all the bases kind of a story. And uh, it was funny, actually, when we were raising our round, I was uh, presenting to the a um, CEO of a very, very well-known company and his staff and went through that story. I just told you about the 19 patients for $2 million in 18 months, and he turned to his VP of R&D and said, uh, you need to find out how they did that. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a nice compliment. Um, so we, we really focused on burning off the proof, proof of concept risk with mm-hmm. that with that money. And then we took those data forward and raised the $20 million A in October of 2015. That's, that's, that's great. What, what is the opportunity here? And, uh, and how are you trying to, uh, to present, uh, pr- pr- provide a new therapeutic, a new treatment? Well, there's a huge number of patients that present for acute decompensated heart failure that really today get um, only palliative care, symptom relief, you know, give them diuretics, get rid of the fluid, pat them on the head, uh, and, and, and hope that they get better. And, and there's been a long need for something new in this space. Uh, you've seen penalties for readmission, et cetera. Uh, the operating principle here is that by improving cardiac output, you can improve end-organ perfusion, you can normalize the neurohormonal storm that's going on. And uh, so we basically create something akin to an electronic VAD, the idea that uh, we stimulate nerve branches in the right pulmonary artery, that selectively descend to the ventricle and selectively control cardiac contractility so we can drive up contractility without driving up rate, and that that increase in perfusion <clears throat> brings the benefit of kidney perfusion and kidney function and diuresis and um, you know causes the patient recovery in a more normal way than is done with any of the drugs that are available today. And that idea of a systemic, getting local inotropy without a systemic inotrope is the critical value proposition. So where are you today with the development? Uh, we're finished and ready to sell if you've got somebody with a big check. Um, <laughs> that would not be me, I assure you. <laughs> no, we're, uh, so we put the team together in uh, late 15, early 16. Uh, between early 16 and February of 17, we, uh, like I said, built the team, got a facility, designed the product, tested the product, built the dossier, submitted it for regular regulatory approval, and did our first human cases. So in something like 14 months, we cranked through all that, which was fantastic. That's it's amazing. a great team. And uh, we've done a bunch of human cases since then, and we're continuing to work on um, mechanism and feasibility. That catheter we designed was really one to burn off um, physiological and design risk and give us our, our design inputs. And we're now designing our commercial product as we speak, and we're you know getting ready to go back to our do our pilot study with that commercial product. So what sort of clinical study... Uh, um regimen do you anticipate needing and, and when when would you like if all went as well as possible like to see something on the market 
Um, so we're, we're on kind of a traditional pathway in that we're doing a pilot study. We'll do some pre-pilot work and, and do our pilot study. We're envisioning a 30-person pilot. Uh, we uh, are working to execute that by the end of 2018. I'm sorry, end of 2019, um, and have all the data analysis done. And then we figure that it's about a three-year cycle time to, you know, do the the pivotal trial, 300-person, two-to-one randomization, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, fairly typical is what we believe today based on what we've analyzed. Um, the pivotal trial is more modest in scope than some other, you know, kind of med device technologies in that our, our therapies and acute therapy. So it doesn't come out to be a $125 million five-year journey. It comes out to be about a three-year, $22.5 million journey to get through that pivotal work. What do you love about being a CEO of a, of a med tech company? <laughs> Well, I always joke it's good to be king, except for the fact that I'm really not because I have a board of directors. <laughs> so, uh, but um, no, I mean, look, I, I got to draft the Yankees. I have a phenomenal team here. I mean, these are just the best of the best, and it's really fun to work with smart people on hard, important problems. You know, we, we get to be very mission-focused about what we want to do and, and sit around and talk like a family about how we need to get it done and have that level of candor, and I think that – Early, going back to the early discussion around, uh, you know, technical rigor and uh, mechanism of action and, um, you know, leadership and being contrarian when necessary all comes out in spades in a startup environment and you and you get to do it the way you want to do it. I mean, that's kind of living the dream, right? Everybody wants to run the show they want to run the, the, the way they want to run it. And, and I get to do that. So it doesn't get much better than that. And what's it like running a, a company in this particular market? What are the, the unique challenges? Is it... Is it uh... You know, in 2010, when you were when you were weighing your options, uh, it, things weren't super for for medtech. So it took some courage, I think, to kind of go out on your own and, and to to start something. Has it been uh, easier than you had anticipated? Has it been more difficult? And, and what are the challenges really that you're having to overcome? I think it's been way harder, actually. Really? Um, not not in a neg- I don't mean that in any way in a negative way. I think I was really naive about what it would take. You know, for example. Uh, reimbursement is a topic that never really came up to me previously in a meaningful way. I didn't, uh, certainly in the early days of the incubator, we knew it was important, but I don't think we really fully appreciated how important it would become and um, how that story has to hang together. I didn't appreciate, you know, one day you're setting up clinical trials and you're trying to convince sites to do studies the next day you're working with the IRBs to answer their questions about safety and patient benefit. And the next day you're talking to the FDA in a pre-sub about the long-term device strategy so that they can justify, you know, working with you on an early feasibility protocol. Um, and then the next day you're talking to investors about, you know, uh, raising money and how you're going to spend their money and showing them the project plan that makes sense. And that, you know, they have to believe that you know how to run a program and, and be efficient. Um, so I think that that, constantly switching gears and, and, you know, literally playing every base, whether it's, again, a project management, business development, et cetera, is really the, is, it was much harder than I thought it would be. Um, it's been great. I love it. I'm glad I built those muscles, but I, I didn't expect to have to be able to do all that. Terrific. Well, it's, it has worked out for you. You're, you're leading a great company there. And uh, do you anticipate Having to undergo the, the the financial, I'm sorry, the fundraising process again anytime soon. What are your, uh, how are you in that department? Yeah, so we uh, we as I mentioned before raised the 20, and we've decided to reopen our A. We're looking for a modest incremental uh, investment uh, 
to capture three opportunities that we've come up with in the meantime oh. and, burn, and burn off a little bit of schedule risk. So we've got a couple of companies right now that are doing due diligence or VCs that are doing due diligence. Um, we haven't decided exactly where we're going to go with that yet, so that the door is still open if somebody's listening here and wants to write us a check. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so, so yeah, we are. We did reopen the A. It's opportunistic versus necessary, uh, but it's uh, you know one of the lessons here is always to take money when you can get it. We still have roughly half of the money we raised in the bank, so uh, it's not not a panic raise or anything like that. But uh, if somebody comes along with the you know the right profile, and they want to join the the endeavor. I think we would be like you know happy to have another top level NEA style VC you know join the party here. Terrific. Well, I honestly hope that this uh, this podcast helps help makes that happen. That's what we're trying to do here. And uh, thanks for the time and for uh, the honesty about your story. It's great to uh, hear how someone finds their way into leading a medtech company. Great. If I can be of service, let me know, and I look forward to seeing you soon. All right, let's wrap this one up, folks. Thank you, Steve Gedeke, for joining us. Great to hear Cardionomics' story, and thanks for sharing your personal story as well. Look forward to tracking Cardionomics' future success. Thank you, MedTech Talk podcast listeners, for joining us. It's, uh, it's great to have you here. We'd love to have more of you, so do us a few favors. If you would, tell your friends about the MedTech Talk podcast. I hope you're enjoying it. If you are, then, then share the wealth could also give a ranking on iTunes or whatever platform you're listening to this podcast. could also just uh, subscribe to the podcast. That's a great help as well. Just push the subscribe button when you see the podcast uh, tile and title. A little subscribe button there often. Just sign up and we'll send you this great content to your listening device each and every week. Finally, I'd love to hear from you. Do shoot me an email, tom at healthag.com. That's the word health, followed by letters egy.com. Again, G is the producer of the MedTech Talk podcast and the Breaking Health podcast and the Digital Healthcare Innovation Summit and our upcoming MedTech conference on May 31st in Minneapolis. So we have lots going on, lots more coming too. If you want to uh, keep abreast of the other events we'll be adding in 2018, I suggest you sign up to uh, the MedTech Talk newsletter. We'll make sure you get updates on our other MedTech and healthcare related events. That's a wrap, folks. Thanks again for tuning in to this week's MedTech Talk podcast. Tune in next week for another great tale of innovation.